Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it! That's really it! And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) As a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's your favorite throwback podcast hosts, Jessica Bennett and Susie Banacaram, here to announce a new season of our show, In Retrospect. Which means a whole new batch of episodes diving into the pop culture moments we love and love to pick apart. From the dethroning of the first black Miss America. To the legacy of a lesbian joke from four Kaftan-loving Golden Girls. Listen to In Retrospect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. This past year marked the 75th anniversary of the Actors Studio. As co-president of the studio, along with Al Pacino and Ellen Burstyn, I wanted to take a moment to celebrate the nonprofit organization and all of its accomplishments. This episode is the first in a series of conversations with people responsible for the studio's success. When the doors of the Actors Studio opened in 1947, in walked actors who would become some of the most famous names in show business. Paul Newman, James Dean, Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson, and Marilyn Monroe. They all flocked to the studio to embrace the philosophy of Russian actor-director Konstantin Stanislavsky. By the 1960s, these lessons imparted by founders Cheryl Crawford, Bobby Lewis, Ilya Kazan, and later by acting guru Lee Strasberg, had begun to influence nearly every serious actor in the world. De Niro, Pacino, Nicholson, Bancroft, and more. Today, some seven decades since its inception, the need for truth in acting, referred to as the method, can be found to some degree in almost every acting program around the world. My guests today are two women who have made extraordinary contributions to continuing the work of the Actors Studio and whose careers have resulted in significant recognition. Estelle Parsons won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Bonnie and Clyde, the second film she ever made. Her time as an actor and director in the theater is no less significant. She's earned five Tony nominations and two Obie Awards. Parsons' work at the studio began in 1962 and includes her roles as artistic director from 1998 to 2003 and co-associate artistic director 
a title she currently holds. But first, my conversation with another leader within the organization, my co-president, Ellen Burstyn. Burstyn is perhaps best known for her performances in films like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The Last Picture Show, The Exorcist, and Requiem for a Dream. She also has the distinction of winning the triple crown of acting, an Oscar, a Tony, and two Emmys. I was curious how she first found her way to the actor's studio and how her craft changed when she began her work there. Well, I've looked at some old television shows. There's a Western that's particularly amusing. There's me in a cowboy hat on a horse. It makes me laugh when I look at it. You know, without studying, if you're born with a certain talent for acting, you can kind of do it, you know. You make you say the words and make sense of them and cook up some bit of emotion sometimes, but it's not real. That's what it is. It's just not real. There's a nasty word in our field indicated. <laughs> I was <laughs> waiting for you to use that word. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was indicated acting. It was good enough to get by to have a, a career in doing guest shots on television. Now, my first thing was a lead on Broadway, but they were looking for a model, and I was a model at the time, so I looked like the part, and I could sort of stumble about the stage and get by. But after working for 10 years without any real training, I had the sense that there were actors around who knew something I didn't know. You know, when I saw Brando and Jimmy Dean and Geraldine Page and Kim Stanley, I went, what is it? What if they got that I can't access? What is that? And I didn't know. But I suspected that it had something to do with Lee Strasberg. And a date came when I was cast in a movie called Goodbye, Charlie, starring Tony Curtis and Debbie Reynolds and Walter Matthau, and I was co-starring. And I was sitting on the set one day, all done up, with a wig that had been Shirley MacLaine's at one time and a dress designed by Edith Head and makeup done by Debbie Reynolds' brother, who was a makeup Billy. artist. Yeah. So I was done up, sitting on stage, and I looked around, and I said, well, this is it. This is the big time. Next step, I'll be playing Debbie Reynolds' part. And this voice that speaks to me in my head on occasion at very important moments said very clearly, I don't want it. And that was it. That was a changing point. I packed up my house and my kid and my dog and moved back to New York and went to Lee Strasberg and basically said, teach me. And you've been out there for a while. Yeah. You get out there and you do... Dr. Kildare, 77 Sunset Strip, Ben Casey, Perry Mason, Wagon Train, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, The Virginian, The Time Tunnel. I mean, my God. The, the list would be shorter of the shows you weren't on. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I saw all those shows. 
the, when I was a kid? The time tunnel was, we went back in time to the earthquake in Krakatoa, and one of the biggest earthquakes ever until that time. And in the final scene, we had run out of time and money, for the producer wanted it over soon. So he came on stage with a pot and a wooden spoon, and he said, when I hit the pot, you all wiggle to the right, and I'll hit it again, and you all wiggle to the left. And that was the... The earthquake. Big, that was the earthquake. You had to do <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, that's what happened. That's when you knew it was time to go home. Actually, it took uh, the the big movie. The Debbie Reynolds. The, yeah. Uh, she was wonderful. Nothing against her, but it was that kind of movie. You know, it was very glossy. Yeah. And I look at it now. I looked at it recently, and uh, it's... I look good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give it that. Yeah. It was good makeup. Billy Reynolds was good. Yeah. He was Elvis's makeup man. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Billy was, yeah. But, you know, it was a certain kind of movie that I just didn't want to do anymore. So I didn't know what to call him. But when you have a chance to do that, what I call brass ring acting, you know, you're <laughs> out there and you got a lot of shots at success and money and fame and that kind of working for the man out there, and you come home, you... Are you out of work for a while, and you're and you're being tested, and you come back to New York, and and you wonder, have I made the right decision, or did things become what you hoped they would in New York relatively quickly in terms of the quality of the work? You came back to New York, and what happened? I went to Lee. I was interviewed by him, and my, <laughs> my interview, he he sat and looked. It was he didn't look at me, and he asked me questions. He said, "What kind of music do you like?" And I said, classical. And he sort of nodded a little. He said, what's your favorite piece of music? I said, Grieg's Concerto in A minor. And he said, what pianist? I said, Walter Giese King. And he nodded, and I saw this smile on his face. And I thought, oh, that was a good answer. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> yeah, right. And then I was accepted into his private classes, and I did an audition for the studio for several years. And finally, <laughs> one day I did a scene. This was out in the actor's studio in California. And uh, afterwards, Lee said to me, How long have you been studying with me, dear? I said, Seven years. And he nodded and he said, Yes, that's usually about what it takes. <laughs> And that's when I then auditioned for the studio. Did he teach out there as well? In the summers. He'd go out to California? Yeah. And teach out there? Yeah. And when you took the private class, you say private meaning one-on-one, or you and a couple oh, other people? Oh, no, I meant, I meant not the actor's studio. Not the studio. It was a class. Right. And how many people were in that class? I would say in attendance on any given day would be 20. Well, that meant that big a class. Yeah. When you're in a room with him for the first time and he's teaching you, was it a question of him trying to push you toward things he wanted you to do, trying to push you toward things he wanted to stop you from doing? What did he say? Well, I'll tell you the first time I worked for him. The first exercise is to create your morning cup of coffee or whatever you drink. It's not there. It's imaginary. So there are five people working on a stage, at each doing a different sense memory. I'm creating my cup. I see out of the corner of his eye, he picks up the cards with our names on it, looks for a name, 
And then he says, Ellen? I say, yes, and I stop working on the cup. He says, no, no, continue working on your cup, which I do. Long pause. Do you ride horses? I used to. Did you ride well? Well, pretty well. I had my own horse. Long pause. Well, you don't have to ride that cup. What? Go on. Make a mistake. Do it. Make a mistake. And I start crying. And I cried for two weeks. <laughs> now, what were we talking about? I'm creating a cup. He's asking about horses. And the result is I'm crying for two weeks. Because he saw something that was part of my conditioning that needed, I needed to stop, and I didn't know how. And he was telling me it was time to give up my conditioning, that that was past, that I could be open. I could make a mistake. I didn't have to be afraid of being punished if I made a mistake. And after two weeks, actually it was my husband who said, at the time who said, well, maybe you can just consider all of that stuff a crutch that you've needed and you don't need it anymore. And I went, yeah, right. So I then went back to Lee without the crutch of my personality I had developed from my conditioning and became open as myself, whatever that was, which I didn't know, but I was willing to discover. The studio, obviously, this is the 75th anniversary. The play starts in 47. And you don't walk in the door till 20 years later in 67. And by the time you come, is it, would you say, not in a negative way, because these things are unavoidable, but, but would you say that it was like becoming like the hip thing to do? Did people, I mean, the 50s were a certain flock of people were there. And then in the 60s, you were there. Did a lot of people, were they craving the method acting experience in order to strengthen themselves as actors? What was the traffic like there? Lots of people trying to get in? I don't know that. I don't have that information. Mm -hmm. I do remember, I wasn't past my first audition. I had to audition again. But when I did, Lee Grant told me, because she was judging along with Lee, that when I came out and sat up at my dressing table and I was using the fourth wall as a mirror and I was looking at myself in the, in the mirror and Lee said to her, you see, when they're right, they don't even have to talk. <laughs> but by then, I had learned how to just do the work. You know, the real issue, I think, is to be able to stay on stage doing what you're doing and not be projecting yourself out in the audience wondering how you're doing. That's really what it's about, that you can just be where you are, be present in the moment, do just what you're doing, and not be judging yourself. Would you say that before you went there and before you started that work, when you went to work beyond that point, once you started to accrue these hours there and these experiences there, did it change the way you worked itself beyond jobs you wouldn't do? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
if you look at the last picture show, which happens to be an answer in the New York Times crossword puzzle this morning. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, the last picture show was the first time that I was doing the work in a picture that you could see it and right. say, that's the work. Right. And the director allowed that. The director wanted he that. Did, he did. The director was thirsty for that. Right. Peter said a, a wonderful thing I've always treasured. I had a scene where I'm sitting in the living room reading a magazine. My boring husband has fallen asleep in front of the television set. And it's, I'm just, you know, bummed out that this is my life. And I hear Cal's truck drive up, my lover. Oh, good, Cal's here. And I put the magazine down, and I go to the door expecting to see him, and I open the door, and it's my daughter. And she comes in, and first of all, damn, it's not Cal, it's my daughter. Two, that was Cal's truck. What is my daughter doing with Cal? Oh, my God, my daughter's sleeping with my lover. And I had to do all of that without a line. And I'm sitting on the set as they're lighting, and I'm thinking about all of that. And I say to Peter, Peter, I have eight different things to go through here and no line. And he smiles like the Cheshire cat and says, I know. I said, well, how am I supposed to do that? He said, think the thoughts of the character, and the camera will read your mind. That's the best advice any director ever gave me. Who was the cinematographer, do you remember? I think it was Bob Surtees. I want to tell you a story he told Please. me. Surtees? <laughs> it's a showbiz story. He was making some movie. I don't know what the movie was. And the leading man completed his last scene. They did his close-up, and he died. <coughs> but they hadn't shot the person he was talking to. They the reverse. didn't have her close-up. <laughs> and so they propped him up and <gasps> shot over his shoulder. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> Is it even legal? No. <laughs> oh, God. I can't even believe that. Oh, God. Yeah. You've had great leading roles and have had great success in the movie business with leading roles with great directors. You go on to do The Exorcist. The two greatest horror films, and for my money, are Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. And one of them is kind of a Baroque fantasy. Some of the acting gets right up to the edge. And it's dripping with a kind of a, not an excess, but like the right amount of a kind of weirdness. Whereas The Exorcist is about this incredibly awful and not necessarily authentic thing that people are possessed in this way that's played completely straight. Every actor walks in and they play the whole thing completely straight. You and Vonsito and Miller and Lee J. Cobb. Oh, Lee J. Cobb. Really? Oh my God. Now, when you do that movie... Did you rehearse? Mm-hmm. Uh, two weeks. A couple weeks of rehearsal. Yeah. On the set, all of the house stuff was shot on a soundstage in New York City. You know, those great movies of the 70s, we rehearsed mm -hmm. two weeks before. When we did the last picture show, we were in that Texas town. 
And all of us were staying in a motel by a highway. None of us had cars. We were all unknown. We didn't get those kind of contracts where we had cars. So we were picked up in a bus, taken to rehearsal, and then dropped back in the motel. So we only had each other. So we spent all of our time when we weren't working together in our hotel, you know, in one of our hotel yeah, rooms. the pool. Yeah, and with a guitar, you know, <laughs> Jeff Bridges brought his guitar and we sang. And Cloris Leachman was going through a horrible divorce and so was I. And we sat on the floor and cried together about our divorces, but in our Texas accents, <laughs> you know. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Why not use it? And The King of Marvin Gardens, which was a wonderful movie that I was in that wasn't a big success, but it's considered a classic now with Bruce Dern and Jack Nicholson. We had two weeks of rehearsal, and we did with The Exorcist. That's where the creativity gets born, you know? And I think they make a big mistake in all of the movies that are made now by the corporations that have taken over the movie studios. Mm -hmm. To cut that out of the budget, you know, that's not important to them. Those movies in the 70s were great for a reason. They were spawned from some writer's need to write that story, you know, and some director's need to bring that to life. It was an art form, you know. It wasn't something that an algorithm said, if you put these elements together, it'll make X number of dollars. What do you do when you're doing a scene and you're a person who is who works a certain way and the other people are not doing the scene in a way that you might be all too pleased with? You don't say anything. In other words, you know, you only yeah. keep your focus on yourself. Well, no, then that person, the character is behaving that way. You know, that that's the reality I'm in. You can only take what they give you. Yeah. And if you're in the scene, if you're present, then whatever that person is doing, that's what you're dealing with. Somebody who behaves like that. Have you ever walked away from a part in film, TV, or theater that you realize at some point you thought, I'm not right for this part? Well, I've turned down a lot of films. Yeah, I mean, I've turned down a lot of scripts that I read and I didn't like. But then once I like a script... And I usually ask to meet the director, and I feel simpatico with the director. Then what comes, comes. You did a sitcom, and I did a sitcom. And what is the applicability of method acting in the world of sitcoms? Like, when you go do a sitcom, what did you tell yourself? Did you sit there and say, a lot of that's going to have to go out the window? Because, of course, we were joking before you came in, my producers and I, about you being a sandwich in between Megan Mullally and Elaine Stritch. That we would love to have seen. We would love to have been a fly on the wall on that set. Nick, I found Angie upstairs. Molly. Oh, I Mom, I'm sorry for interrupting your class, but the dog has decided to have puppies in Nana's closet. I'm sorry to interrupt your class, Ellen, but there's something in my closet. And it's growling. <laughs> Excuse me, would you step outside? I don't want to know. Just step outside. I'm telling you. I am trying to teach class in there. Ellen, class is not something you teach. You either have it or you don't. Megan was my choice, and it was her first show. Right. She had never done anything before, and she auditioned 
for it, and I just fell in love with her love and wanted her, yeah. her to to do it. The director had another pick, and I fought for Megan and finally won because, you know, it was called the Ellen Burstyn Show. Right. He and I were not a happy marriage that and that director. We right. were partners in it. And it, we didn't ever have the same idea of what the show ought to be. And he's a very talented writer, director, and especially with comedy. But we just had different backgrounds and different right. trainings, so it didn't work. I just remember, you know, we were playing to a live audience, so it was like doing a live show. Mm-hmm. And it just never, it was never jibing. I had a I had a friend who was <laughs> assisting me. I mean, she was being my assistant on the show, and I I have this image of her standing outside my dressing room with her arms folded, keeping everybody out as I cried for a long, long time. Right. You know, and she was like the guard at the door as I cried. So <clears throat> it, it was a miserable experience. Elaine. As my mother, and Elaine was, I think, only seven or eight years older right, than right, I. Right, exactly. But she's a wonderful, amazing talent. Yeah. So I Elaine had... played my mother. That's the other thing we have in common. <laughs> Actors Studio co-president Ellen Burstyn. If you love conversations about creativity and craft, be sure to check out my episode with distinguished Actors Studio member. Dustin Hoffman. Someone said to me, if you want to know Lenny Bruce, you got to go see Sally Marr, his mother. She introduced me to one of his best friends, and he in turn introduced me to friends of Lenny. They all said the same thing. Lenny was always very quiet, and suddenly he's gone, because he was a shy guy, apparently. And he's gone, and they look around, they don't know where he is, and then they find him in the kitchen talking to the, the help. He loved to just talk to the people and ask questions and find out stuff. The musicians were more important to him than the audience. Lenny felt that if he could crack up the musicians, then he was getting somewhere. Hear more of my conversation with Dustin Hoffman at heresthething.org. After the break, Ellen Burstyn shares some of the best advice she gives to members of the Actors Studio. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What does optimism look like? 
I'm on a quest to find the people who inspire us to dream more and do more. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. I talk to all sorts of people, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a hairdresser on Instagram who gives out free haircuts to the homeless, from the CEOs of the world's largest companies to the comedy writer who visited the wreckage of the Titanic. I love talking to leaders, artists, authors, and eccentrics about life, leadership, purpose, mental fitness, human skills, high performance, and other curious things. It leaves me feeling wiser, more inspired, and, well, more optimistic. Because after all, this is a bit of optimism. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look for it. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Ellen Burstyn began her time at the Actors Studio in 1967, but quickly rose through the ranks serving as a moderator, artistic director, and now co-president. I wanted to know when and how she first became a part of the leadership of the studio. Lee died in the early 1980s, and there were many of us on the board who came together to, you know, keep the studio together. Al, myself, Paul Newman, Shelley Winters, Arthur Penn, Estelle Parsons, many others, and... First, it was decided that there would be a, a troika, which was me and Al and Arthur, I think. And then after a while, it just got down to me and Al, and then Harvey became a co-president, too. And then when Harvey's term was over, you joined. So I've been involved right along. Lee started me moderating right after I won an Oscar, and which was, I think, 74. So I had always been in a position of a moderator at the studio since then and on the board, so I've been deeply involved with the studio since end of the 1970s. You know, the, the times I would teach acting, not moderating, obviously there's a profound difference, as you well know, but when I would teach acting, which I hate it, I really didn't care for it. Because so much of it is, you know, what, what you bring, you, do you have it or don't you? Acting, I think, lessons can make you a better actor, but can they make you a good actor? I, I don't really know. I don't they can't so. make you a talented actor. Yeah. You either, <laughs> you know? yeah. You have the talent or not. Now, the studio now, it's 75th anniversary. When I first came and was invited by Corsaro to come and attend and be a, an observer many, many years ago, there were people there who were members who were older, many of them not, not having the same career that you had. They hadn't worked in quite a while, maybe. They were really, that the studio was really their only link to the business in a way. They weren't working in film or television or theater. But I see now there was a different wave of people coming through. There are younger people coming through there now. It's like a new crop of people that are really finding this work essential for them. Do you feel that way, that there's a new generation of people coming through the doors? I do. You know, Kazan said when he started this studio that he wanted to establish a spiritual home for actors. And that's what it's become. It's a place where actors can go to work on their craft, to work on their ability to do their very best work and transcend 
what's naturally available to them without that kind of deep study. You know, I say to actors, you can't just act when you get a job. You've got to be in shape. You've got to practice. You have to be doing it. Horowitz, who is the greatest living pianist of his time, practiced eight hours a day every day of his life until he died. And that's the kind of dedication it takes to be an artist of any kind, if that's what you're interested in being. That's what interests me about acting, is the art of acting. And that's what the studio is home to for young actors, old actors, any actor who wants to come and experience the art of acting, whether they get a gig or not. Who's one person you worked with who you noted that they worked most the way that you do? Someone who, when you were working with them, you thought, oh, God, this is really a treat. Mm. Eva Legallian, my God. Describe. Well, you know, she had a, a repertory company in New York, and, and she was the only person who had a repertory company in New York for many years. And she was a great actress, but she had never been on film. She was only in the theater. And when I made my favorite film of all time that I made, Resurrection, I had to have a grandmother. And I invited Eva Legallian up to lunch, and I asked her if she would play my grandmother. And she did. And the experience of working with her She had a a moment where I was saying goodbye to her, and she had the line, that's it, isn't it? If we could just love each other the same way we say we love him, I expect there wouldn't be such bother in the world. And every time she said the word love, I swear her voice dropped into her heart and pushed tears out of my eyes. I love you, Grandma. Yes. That's it, Andrew. If we could just love each other. As much as we say we love him, I expect there wouldn't be the bother in the world there is. I expect. <laughs> Every take. No matter how many takes or angles we did, it came right out of her chest, her heart, into my tear ducts. She was the most remarkable actor I ever worked with, and she's only been in a film once. And it's my favorite film, Resurrection, and you can now see it. It's on Roku now. It's available. I play a healer, Uh and I put the film together. This is your favorite film you ever did? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And nobody saw it. Although it was one of the films I was nominated for. But she was the greatest artist I ever worked with, acting artist. Thank you for doing this with me. It's my pleasure. Ellen Burstyn. My next guest, the great Estelle Parsons, has done everything from Ethel Merman musicals to playing Roseanne's mother on the beloved TV sitcom to directing The Bard on stage, all within her long and illustrious career. After some false starts in both the legal and political professions, I wanted to know what had eventually led her 
to become an actor. I didn't have any path in my life. Uh, my mother took me to, there was a community theater in Lynn, Massachusetts, the Tavern Players. It was run just by chance by a woman, an extraordinary directing type woman. And they did plays for children. Someone wrote them in the community. And they did plays for grown-ups. And it was um, what you now would call a really good community theater and really good people in it. I mean, I was seven. How do I know a good person You're a kid. a bad person? Right. But anyway, my mother wanted to be a part of it. Every, I guess her social set was a part of it. So she took myself and my sister to it. So I started acting then in children's plays. And the first thing I did, I was a frog, and that was great. But then it came time for the performance, and I had this frog suit, and then I put on the frog head and went out on the stage to do my part. And I thought, I'm never going to wear anything over my head on the stage again. And I never have. And that was the beginning of my understanding acting. Acting is something that happens between people and an audience, you know, that's really what it's all about for me. Theater acting. I don't know whether the other stuff people do, TV, films, is that acting? Sure it is, but it's different. I do want to mention just for our audience's edification here that you're one of the few actors I've ever met in my life who, by a good amount, your Broadway credits exceed your film and television credits. Oh, funny. Isn't that funny? So you're exposed to this in this theater as you're a kid, but you go on to the Oak Grove School for Girls. Well, I was boarding school. Yeah. I mean, you have to go to school, but I, I didn't think acting was something you did when you grew up. You know, I'm from New England, and I'm from an old New England family back to 1632. We read that, yeah. When you went on to go to Connecticut College, what was the sense of what you wanted to study there? I didn't want to study anything there. I didn't want to go there. I grew up at Jack Lemmon. I mean, he lived four houses from me. So he played the piano. I played the piano. And he made up all these wonderful songs. And so I had a whole routine that I could do, you know, in bars and stuff, or at parties. I'd just go to parties and wait for someone to say, hey, Estelle can play the piano. And then I'd do my routine with these songs of Jackie's and some others that I threw in myself. So that was what I really wanted to do. But it's, it was just a natural thing to go to college. But all the time I was there, I said to my father, look, people come up from New York. They hear me. They see me. I've got cards. I can go start in New York. He said, no, you, you want to finish college. You'll be glad that you did. I was, of course, in the English department, and I went to the first class, and they were studying Macbeth. And Miss Bethurum, who was head of the whole English shebang, started talking about Macbeth, and I got so offended, offended so badly that they would sit there and talk about Macbeth as an intellectual thing that I went directly to the dean and said, I'm, a, I'm out of the English department. I can't take that. I can't listen to Macbeth being talked about that way. Why? Because they were just talking about it as an intellectual exercise. It's meant to be on the stage. Okay, okay. So I said, you know, I think I'll probably go into politics because I didn't think you acted. Well, listen, this I'm is... the same for me. I thought this UK, this is too risky. I need to go to law school. I was going to go to law school and get a real job. But eventually when you, you, you left the English department because you were offended by the intellectualization of Macbeth, but then you go to BU Law School. 
Well, I thought I'd go into politics. Mm -hmm. And so I got out of college, and then I was hanging around. I was just standing for Ava Gardner and some stuff on tour, you know. They had to do long shots for some movies she was making with Clark Gable. I was just hanging around after college. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. When I was working in the theater when I was a kid in that community theater, the, the woman who ran it saw that I had some a gift, obviously, so I was playing leading roles all the time I was a kid. By the time I was 15, I was a perfectly professional actor. <laughs> anyway, I decided to go to law school, so I went to BU because Harvard didn't take women. And there were two women and like 299 men. The other woman was the wife of one of the men. You went to Lockovers for a drink. You had to sit in the back steps because they wouldn't let you in the bar because you were a female. The next year, Harvard took women and, of course, took me in the first year again. They wouldn't take me in the second year, even though I'd finished the year of law school. They wouldn't say, transfer your year. What kind of world is this? Mm. And I didn't like competing against men all the time. I just found that I love men, and I just didn't want to compete against them all the time. I thought, if I go into this profession, I'll just be the loneliest person in the world, which the women that I knew in the profession were, you know, a generation before or after me. When did you—I mean, I'm assuming— at one point, you moved to New York. I, I didn't really move to New York, no. You commuted. I, I, a friend— of my family had driven up in a Cadillac that broke down. So they had to go back on the train. And so the friend called on my mother and said, Stella isn't doing anything. Can she drive their Cadillac back to New York for them? So I said, sure. So my mother and I got in the Cadillac and drove to New York. And I stayed with some girls from college who had moved down here. Just for a couple of days, and I went to see um, uh, my roommate's sister had married a guy who was uh, at NBC. So I went over to say hello to him, and he said, hey, you know, they're hiring people from morning television. Why don't you go and see this guy, Mort Warner? He's coming from California. He's from radio. He's going to start morning television. There's no morning television. Which, of course, there wasn't. There was nighttime television. Nobody in nighttime television wanted to go on morning television because nobody thought anybody would watch it in the morning. So I went to see this guy. He said, yeah, well, send me your CV. Or mm -hmm. I didn't know what it was, so I went back to Marblehead with my mom, and I wrote up my life story. I thought that was what he wanted. So I sent him my life story, and he calls me up and says, you're hired. So I said to my father, you know, I'm going to New York, probably be gone six months. I mean, nobody's going to watch TV in the morning. So he said, we Parsons don't leave home, you know. So I said, okay, I'll just be gone six months and I'll be back, which I thought I would. Yeah. And I was with NBC for five years. Five years? Yeah. I was the first woman to do political reporting for a network. What did you do, cover conventions? Were you at conventions? I covered or? Marilyn Monroe. I covered conventions. I went on the road with Kefauver when he ran for president. Yeah, I had all kinds of good what times. What years was this? This was in the, in the 50s. 50s. Right. And then I got married, and then I had twins, and then Jerry Green said, we're sending you to the Grace Kelly wedding in Monaco. And I said, you know what, Jerry? I don't want to go. And it was the, you know... Everybody wanted to be yeah. the person that was sent to Monaco. I don't want to go. 
<laughs> he looked at me and I looked at him and said, I think I'm going to move on. <laughs> really? That's when you knew. And my husband said, why don't you go on the stage? You're always talking about it. So I said, okay. And his friend Abe Burroughs was going to do Happy Hunting with Ethel Merman. So I went and sang for Abe Burroughs and he hired me. 1956. And I've been on the stage ever since. Ever since. Ever since. Now, let me ask you, you make your debut, I would imagine is the way to put it, 1956, Happy Hunting. And you don't make a movie until 1963, which is Ladybug, Ladybug, seven years after you start acting. And in that seven years until 63, you do a bunch of shows. I was on tour with Carol Channing with The Millionaires, and it was Frank Perry, whom I knew from the actor's studio, along the way there. I became a member of the Actors Studio. What year did you go to the? Did you first go to the studio? It was in the fifties. I heard about it, and I asked a, a woman who was working with me on the Today Show. I said, "Hey, I want to audition for this place. I read about it in the Times and how all the actors were there and everything. It sounded like a good place to be." So I had a scene from our town, you know, Emily. And I asked a person who wasn't even an actress who was working on the show, today's show with me. She'd come from California with, she was a writer or something. I don't know what she was. But anyway, I said, just take this and read it. I'm going to go audition for the studio. Can you believe how dumb and naive? It's hard to believe how dumb and naive one is when one is young, isn't it? So I go into Kazan and Bobby Lewis, who started the studio, with this person who's not an actor, and I do my little acting about Emily in our town. (laughs) And Kazan said... You know, Lee Strasberg has acting classes, and he said, I think you ought to go over and see Lee Strasberg. So I did, and I made an appointment, and I got there, and he came out, and uh, there was a chair in the hall. I was sitting there, and he said, why do you want to be an actor? And I started crying, and I cried for about five minutes. But you see, everything going on with me was purely subconscious. I don't I didn't have any conscious drive to do anything. I was just living my life. I thought that's what life was about. You just kind of live it. And nobody cared what I did. So I didn't know you were supposed to do this, supposed to do that, or whatever other people do. Now, what I'm curious about is that was Strasberg someone who, when you met him and you first started working with him, were you impressed by his gifts as a teacher right away? I know one thing. I'd never wanted to study acting with anybody, ever. You know, there were all these places people were going to study acting. I didn't—nobody had anything to teach me. I still feel that way. Nobody had anything to teach me at all. I knew all about it. I'd been doing it since I was seven. Mm-hmm. What is it? It's you get up there, you, you have something remember to do. Remember your lines. Yeah, you have to remember your lines and say them loud enough for 500 people to hear it, and that's the job. What's the big deal about acting, right? Everybody was in there, George Papard and Lou Antonio and all these people who went on to do things. And Marilyn Monroe, by the way, later on. But anyway, the private classes were great. This is before I got into the studio. You see, that's why Kazan had sent me there to do those classes and then get into the studio. But you see, what he created was a space where... You had to really give your all. You see, it was not good. It was not get up and be good. 
It was not get up and do what you remember. It was get up and be great. At least that was my impression of it because I'd gone to all these other classes and I couldn't stand it. But with him, it was just a space where you had to get up and the stakes were so high. You just had to be great. You had to aim at greatness. Estelle Parsons. If you're enjoying this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend and follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Estelle Parsons shares how living out of the trunk of her car with her children led to her winning an Oscar. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What does optimism look like? I'm on a quest to find the people who inspire us to dream more and do more. I'm Simon Sinek, and I host a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. I talk to all sorts of people, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a hairdresser on Instagram who gives out free haircuts to the homeless, from the CEOs of the world's largest companies to the comedy writer who visited the wreckage of the Titanic. I love talking to leaders, artists, authors, and eccentrics about life, leadership, purpose, mental fitness, human skills, high performance, and other curious things. It leaves me feeling wiser, more inspired, and, well, more optimistic. Because after all, this is a bit of optimism. The world is full of magic and wonder, if you know where to look for it. Listen to A Bit of Optimism on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Chelsea Handler, and if you listen to my podcast, Dear Chelsea, you know that I love making space for women to share their stories. And that is why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Search Women Take the Mic to listen to a collection of International Women's Day episodes from iHeart's top podcasts, including Angela Yee's Lip Service, The Psychology of Your 20s, and Dear Chelsea. It is a great way to support women and discover your new favorite show. Listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Actors Studio Co-Associate Artistic Director Estelle Parsons has a deep relationship with the theater, including numerous roles on and off Broadway. I wanted to know if earning an Oscar so early for her second film, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, sparked a desire for more work in cinema. No, I had no interest. That's why I didn't do any before that, because I had no interest. I had lots of opportunity to do films and TV, but I didn't want to. I wanted to work in the theater. 
But then I wanted to work for Arthur, so I didn't care where Arthur was or what he was doing. But I wasn't going to do that because he said we were working at the Berkshire Drama Festival, and uh, he said, I've got a movie I'd like you to read. And I said, I don't do movies. And he said, well, I'd like you to read it. And I said, okay, I'll read it, but I'm telling you, I'm going to San Francisco. I've left New York. I've got my kids with me. I'm joining a company out there that John Hancock has started, so I'm making a whole new life in San Francisco, so I'm not going to do your movie because I'm going to be in a rep company. So all I've ever wanted to do in my life is be in a rep company, so that's where I'm going. So he said, well, read it. So I started reading. I thought, oh, for God's sake, this is the Madeline Sherwood part. Why am I bothering to read this thing? And then as it went on, I thought, Jesus, this is a really interesting thing. But I was on my way to San Francisco with my kids and the dog and the whole thing. <laughs> then I get a call from John Hancock that the money fell apart, and we weren't going to San Francisco. I'd already sublet my apartment in New York. I was living out of a trunk with my two kids. So I called Arthur and said, I can do your movie. So I went to the library, because I had months to sit around and do nothing waiting for this movie, and rearranging my life, because my rep company dream fell apart. And I, I knew more about Bonnie and Clyde and everything they did in their lives than any other person on earth by the time I got to that to make that movie. I just knew everything. When was the first project you directed? It was a stage play. The like first it. play I really directed was Annie and Cleopatra. And the reason I directed it was that there was this thing called the Women's Inter-Art Theater. And she said, I want you to do something. I said, okay. And I had prepared Cleopatra and Medea and Lady Macbeth. I had prepared those at the studio, so I was prepared to play those parts. But I didn't know a director who would, you know, like work for 10 cents where the theater was located. So she kept saying, well, you do whatever you want to do here. You do it. And then, you know, who says that to an actor? Do what you want to do. So I thought, oh, gosh. I said, well, I'm going to direct it myself because I can't get anybody to direct it. And the Shakespeare Quarterly called it the best Shakespeare since, oh, rapturous. If you would read the Shakespeare Quarterly, what Arthur Holmberg said about me in that production and how it looked at it, it was going to be so terrible and it was really so wonderful. And where did I get the courage to do that kind of work and all these things, you know. But then we adopted a boy, and I went off to, I was over in Ireland, and I got a call in a sauna somewhere on the Dingle Peninsula, and I got a call from Joe Pabb saying, I'd like you to start a Shakespeare company for me, a multicultural Shakespeare, just the kind of work you did in Antony and Cleopatra. So I said, okay. And when we got back, I had a Shakespeare company for him for two years. In 86, you directed As You Like It and Scottish play and Romeo and Juliet. And you're the director of all three. Yeah. Was that with a theater company? Yeah, that was my Shakespeare, New York Shakespeare Festival players. We played for the entire school system. I did Scottish play, and it was this really, really uh, incredible learning experience. There were two times in my life, one in the theater and one in the movies, where I said, I'm going to put myself in the hands of the director. And we did Scottish play, and I just said to myself, I'm going to do whatever George asks me to do. I'm going to find a way to make that work. Even if I don't agree with him, I'm going to 
stuff down my feelings and try to find a way to address what he's saying. I did that in a film as well. And I was so fucking miserable both times. Because when we did Scottish, I love George. George was very sick at the time. He was about to get a kidney transplant. George who? George C. Wolfe. Oh. Yeah, George was running the public then. And, yeah. And then he directed the play. I did the play with uh, Angela Bassett and Lee F. Schreiber. Remember, there was one scene where I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do. And I didn't have that much experience with Shakespeare. I really didn't. But I knew what I wanted to do, and he wouldn't let me. He really, really... We just clashed and clashed and clashed. But I learned, you got to make me understand. you got to make me understand. I, I'm begging you, make me understand. You want me to do what and why? You know? Now, when you won an Academy Award, did that change your feeling about making movies? Did you sit there and go, hey, this is nice, your second film, only your second film? Well, the first film was a a half an afternoon shoot, so I didn't really count that as a film. Ladybug, Ladybug. Yeah. Okay. So your first full film, and you won an Oscar. Buddy and Clyde, and that was my first film because I didn't want to do films, so that was also my last film. But after that, I did do a few more. I don't know how many, but a few only because I did one because it was the first black man to do a movie in Hollywood. I said, don't do it, don't do it. I said, I'm doing it. He wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to help him out. Uh, Melvin Van Peebles. I did that. And then I did two or three others because I wanted to put my kids through college. But winning didn't motivate you. I kept my mouth shut because I know how important it is to people who want to have movie careers, but I just didn't want one. Sorry. Sorry, I just didn't want it. I had no use for my in that for my life, for me in that life. And not only that, I hated it because, you know, I'd go out of the house and there'd be people standing on the sidewalk out of my house to waiting for me. Yeah. I said, I can't have a life like this. Yeah. I mean, other people can have a life like this. They want a life like this. Fine, let them have it. I can't have a life like this. I got to be able to go through life, you know, as a person. I've got to be able to have my life. I can't do this success thing. What's the last thing you saw in the theater that you enjoyed, that you liked? Well, of course, Adrian's play is on. And I love Adrian. I commissioned a play from her when I ran the studio. What's the play? Ohio State Murders. Uh Uh-huh. That's running now. Yeah. What keeps you connected to the studio? Oh, I'm doing wonderful stuff at the studio because I can do anything I want there. I've always been able to do It's an empty space. Come on, what do you want to do? Well, I have things I want to do, and I get up and do them. I have directed so many things there. I have a devised piece that I'm sending all over. I have two one-man shows, one with an Hispanic actor and one with a black actor. For years, they are going around the country and even around the world with their one-man shows about growing up, you know, in the ghetto and so on, or coming from Dominican Republic and stuff. I have those shows out. I have three or four other shows out I'm selling here. and Not selling, but, you know, not a lot of money changes hands, but I don't really have an interest in money, so. Can I come carry a spear for you in one of your productions? Just can I have some small Watch out. Don't ask that, because I'm liable to call you You right up this afternoon. You should. My thanks to Estelle Parsons and Ellen Burstyn. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. 
I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast. How did we get weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the oh, barrel up so to fun. up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guests like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's your favorite throwback podcast hosts, Jessica Bennett and Susie Banacaram, here to announce a new season of our show, In Retrospect which means a whole new batch of episodes diving into the pop culture moments we love and love to pick apart. From the dethroning of the first black Miss America to the legacy of a lesbian joke from four Kaftan-loving Golden Girls. Listen to In Retrospect on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.